worshiping with us this morning. We know that some of you are here because you have family that are bringing their babies up for a parent baby dedication. We're just glad that you're worshiping with us this morning. Glad to have you with us. I have a couple of announcements, actually a few things I'd like to call to your attention. First of all, some of you received this last week. It's uh, don't just come to church, be the church. And so if you don't have one of these little bookmarks, then they're are, they are at the guest table out as you leave the sanctuary. And I encourage you to take these home and look at them and think about it. And as you, before you come to church each Sunday morning, kind of take a look and say, okay, which one of these things am I going to maybe try to focus on today? Maybe there's somebody that I don't know. I'll go sit by them. Maybe somebody I've never met. I'll go introduce myself to them. And you can just take a look at that. Sure appreciate it if you would do that. Small groups are starting up. If you have questions about that, you'd like to be in a small group, you're not in one right now, please stop at the guest table as you leave and ask for information about that. Also want to remind those of our regular church family, next Sunday we have an annual business meeting. So uh, that's an exciting time, and uh, everybody looks forward to a business meeting. So I like to call them family forums, okay? We used to have family discussions. I don't know, in your family, we used to have these family powwows. Let's just look at it that way. Hopefully you'll be able to join us next week. Also, we have a baptism coming up, some things in the bulletin. So the baptism, if you're interested or know somebody who is, we'd really like to get those forms in either today or tomorrow so that we can get working on that. Also, I wanted to uh, uh, ask you to... Uh, be praying for Jeff and, and Vicki. Uh, Jeff, is Vicki, where's Vicki? Uh, where's she, Vicki? Jeff and Vicki. Uh, Karen, do you have the gift card? You have it? Okay, Jeff and Vicki, this is our last Sunday with us, so I just uh, I asked you to make a special note of that. Thank you, guys. Uh, we're uh, addresses in the bulletin, so they're moving on a new adventure in life, so we just want to be praying for them. We're just grateful for uh, their ministry, uh, for many, many years here in this church. So thank you, Jeff and Vicki, so for all that they've done uh, for us. Also, uh, we have a main event here is the baby dedication, parent baby dedication. So I'm going to just uh, say a few words about that, and then I'll bring the families up with their little ones, which everybody's more anxious to see, the little ones and what's going on. But uh, what is a, a baby dedication? At Creekside Church, we don't do infant baptism. Uh, we do a parent-baby dedication, and we particularly say it's a parent-baby dedication uh, because there's two things that are happening, at least two things. First of all, the couples and their little ones that are listed in the bulletin, and so that would be uh, Mike and, and Leslie Hirons and, and their little girl Emily, uh, Jacob and Katie Marquardt and Violet, and then Josh and Amy Brandt are bringing Oliver and... Then Alan and Lauren Krim are bringing Ethan. And so they are coming up, and it's, it's a celebration of life. The psalmist says that children are a gift from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. It's a blessing. And so they're saying, you know, we praise God for this gift of life. But it's also a consecration. And so they're making a, a commitment to, to consecrate themselves uh, to, to do a few things. Uh, they're consecrating themselves for, uh, for life. So I'm going to ask the couples to bring their little babies up. I got us some words of encouragement and challenge for the couples. And so uh, I don't know how we're going to do this. Uh, why don't you guys all, I don't know if you can all four get up here. It's kind of a little bit of a tight space, but that's okay. I'll, I'll go down here. You guys stand up there, okay? And just get up there with your little, little ones. Everybody wants to see those little uh, loving faces, and uh, that's kind of cool. So... 
Uh, there they are. Okay, so you all, here, here's what I want to challenge you with. Okay, first of all, uh, in this way, you're, you're, they're saying, hey, we want to raise these little ones up to know and fear and follow Jesus. And so I'm challenging you as a congregation to be praying for them and come alongside them to encourage them. I'm going to challenge this group as, uh, as couples with a few things. First of all, I'm going to challenge you to cultivate your walk with the Lord. The best thing you can do for the little ones that you're holding is to cultivate your own relationship with, with the Lord Jesus. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The next best thing you can do is not just to cultivate your walk with God, but to concern yourselves with your relationship with your spouse. Paul says, husbands, you love your wives as Christ loved the church. And wives, you respect your husbands. Uh, the greatest gift you can give your kids aside from sharing the love of Jesus with them, is to care and love and minister to your spouse. There is, I mean, I, I can just tell you that there's no greater thing. Those kids will grow up, they will be secure. They will know they're loved, and they will be able to make a difference for Jesus because their parents cared for and encouraged and ministered to each other. So find time. I don't know what you have to do in your schedule, but you need to find time to be together uh, and, uh, you know, even be apart from these ones. Even as much as you love them and the other ones in your household, if you have other ones, uh, they need to know that they are second in the house, that your spouse is number one in the house. God is number one, but the spouse is number one in the house. And then the, the kids, you know, they, they'll, they'll figure it out. You know, they just go play. We're talking. You know, that, that, that's good. That's okay to tell them that. That's good for them, okay? And then communicate God's love and God's truth. And you know the familiar passage in Deuteronomy where uh, the, uh, Moses was said, and, and these words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your sons. And you shall speak of them when you, when you sit in your house and when you walk along the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. So in every day of life, every activity of life, it's, it's communicating God's truth to them, and particularly their need for a Savior. I mean, every one of these precious ones up here, you know, people are looking at them going, oh, precious little ones, but I'm telling you, folks, they need Jesus. They're precious, but they're fallen, and they need the Lord. And so you bring them up and share the gospel with them, and, and encourage them. So I'm just going to ask you a couple questions. Are, are each of you as individuals, because you're making a pledge to raise them up in the ways of the Lord, are you personally trusting in Jesus Christ and his death alone as a payment for your sins? And if so, say, yes, we are. Okay, do you understand that what you're doing here this morning is you're just saying, hey, we are imperfect people, but we're going to do the best job we can by God's grace and with his help to raise these little ones in, in the ways of uh, of the Lord, so that uh, Violet and, and, and Ethan and, and Oliver and Emily uh, are going to grow up to hear and know about Jesus the best we can, and if so, say, uh, yeah, we understand. Okay, let me just pray for these guys and gals, and you encourage them if you can after the service and, and hold them up in your prayers. Father, I just pray for these couples. And these little ones, my heart prayer for them, Father, is that the couples would show and share the love of Jesus with these dear precious ones often. Through their love for each other, through their love for you, 
I pray that you'd give them grace and wisdom when they're tired and when they're hungry and when they're hurting and when they're emotionally, physically drained as parents to try to be able to minister love to these little ones and the rest in their family if they have more than one. I pray for your grace and encouragement. And I ask that you would give them courage to be putting their relationship with you first, their relationship with each other second, and then to care for their kids. God, give them grace, give them encouragement, give them wisdom, help keep them close to you. And by your grace, Lord, I pray for each of these little ones that they would come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior at a very young age and they would grow up to be finely aimed arrows sent out into the world to impact the world for Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Lord bless you. All right. Yes, let's give them a hand. One of the best ways I know to grow the church of Jesus Christ is discipleship through the home. So let's pray and then we'll uh, sing and take up the offering. Father, uh, thank you for the gift of life. Thank you for the material blessings you give to us. And now as we take up this offering, uh, receive from our hearts and from our hands uh, appreciation, worship in the form of these gifts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. you to pray with me if you would. Father, we sing a song about it's so sweet to trust in Jesus. And yet sometimes it's so very difficult to trust in Jesus. And so I pray that as we look into your word that you would continue to receive from our hearts worship that is genuine and real. God, I know that I need your help to take these truths and I ask that you would wash over my heart and soul with them so that I might be steeled in what they say and my life would be changed and impacted by the truth. I pray that for each of us here, that you would draw us, that you would deepen us, and that you would change us by your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote, I have a dream that one day my four little children will live in a country where they will be not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. thought about that in light of last Monday being Martin Luther King Jr. Day and listening to some of our Creekside kids recite the whole I Have a Dream speech on WHO radio on Monday. What Martin Luther King Jr. dreamed of for this country, God demands for his kingdom. In fact, the scriptures go so far to say that the conduct or the, the content of our character as revealed by the content of our actions determines whether or not we're even in the kingdom. Conduct reveals character. Our conduct reveals 
the kind of character that we have. We saw last week, we're studying through the book of 1 John, so we were in 1 John chapter 2, verses 28 through chapter 3, verse 3. We saw last week that John deliberately linked righteous living with Christ's second coming. That there was something about Christ's second coming, and went on to say, and we went on to uh, talk about the fact, that those who truly profess faith in Christ will live righteously encouraged by the prospect of the future coming of Jesus. It's a motivation, it's a stimulation to live righteously, which reflects our character as those who are truly righteous. Now, as we move on to chapter 3, verses 4 through 10, we see in this section that John declares that true believers are expected to live righteously, enabled by the power provided by Christ's first coming. So, the previous section dealt with motivation that comes from his future coming. Now we talk about empowerment or enablement that comes from his first coming. You see, John instructs them, he instructs us, that right living is the result, the necessary result of right standing. If we're in right standing with God, then there will be a necessary result of right living in relationship to God. We possess what we profess if we truly live in righteousness. 1 John chapter 3, beginning with verse 4, I invite you in your Bibles to turn there as I read it, because John argues from two opposite perspectives, a negative and a positive, to say the same thing. On the basis of Christ's first coming, right living is the sure result of those who are in right standing. If we're in right standing, we are going to live rightly. That's what he says. So I'm going to read the text, beginning with verse 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Now, that's some strong stuff. That's some pretty bold language, and we're going to try to unpack it. The first perspective he brings is the the negative, and that is if we practice unrighteousness, we are not children of God. And that's pretty stout stuff. There are three ways that he makes the case for it. First of all, the premise. There's a premise that's given regarding our conduct. In verse 4, if you read verse 4, now the New American Standard says everyone. It's a Greek phrase that appears six times in these few verses. It's the same Greek phrase, although it's not translated the same. So if you look down the text, in verse 4 it says everyone. 
And then in, in like verse 6, it says, no one who abides. Well, it's actually the same Greek phrase, but the negative has been put in front of it. So it's everyone, 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 six times. Because the, the writer, John, translates it this way because he wants to eliminate any sense that there might be a double standard. It's everyone, without exception. The language defies. It's a universal truth that defies exception. I've had a, a few different uh, frequent flyer uh, miles cards with different airline companies. They're full of exceptions. You know, oh, you, 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 you fly on this airline and it's a great thing and you get your frequent flyer miles and then you can use those miles and fly different places and that's a bunk. It's, it's, it, oh, yeah, the exception is to, at certain dates there's an exception and then there's certain cities that's an exception and then there are certain airlines well that's an exception and then there's certain times of the day that's an exception you can fly whenever you want except to this city at this time during at this date the law of gravity defies exception even iron man is subject to the law of gravity so here John says, everyone, everyone, verse 4, who practices sin. He's talking about everyone who is there living in sin. They continually miss the mark. It's a deliberate choice of passive indifference or active rebellion against God on an ongoing basis. He's talking to people who are practicing sin. Now, now, there's a big distinction here because some people are going to hear this and go, well, I mean, I sin, you know, I mean, I, I really think I'm a child of God, but I still sin. That's not who he's talking to. That's not who he's targeting here. He's targeting those, he's confronting the denial of the significance of sin amongst the teaching in that culture. The Gnostics thought because they know stuff, they could get away with, with sinning. In chapter 1, if you will remember, some of you remember back in chapter 1, if you look at verse 8 in chapter 1, it says, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. In chapter 1, he addressed that part of the teaching of the day, the heresy of the day, that taught that there was no presence of sin in their life, that, that you, because you were one of these knowing ones, because you were an enlightened person, you didn't have any sin in your life. And he says, that's garbage. Now, in chapter 3, he's addressing those who deny the significance of sin in their lives, who say, you know, it, because we're enlightened, we can live however we want. It really doesn't matter. He says, that's garbage. That's my understanding of what he's trying to unpack to us. It does matter. The group, to this group, John drives home the importance, and he drives home the importance to us, of, of the universality of sin. It's confronted in their heresy. Okay? So sin does matter. To practice sin is lawlessness. It doesn't matter. You can't just keep practicing sin. The presence of sin in the life of those who profess faith in Christ on an ongoing basis without any remorse, any repentance, any sorrow, any grief is antithetical to the truth of God's Word. It just doesn't mix. You can't have it. You know, the drug cartels in Mexico, they routinely disregard the law in Mexico, in the United States, wherever they go. They don't care. 
It, it doesn't matter. I was at a meeting in a library with a, one of our U.S. congressmen, and he was telling about a trip that he had taken to Europe. And he'd been in Belgium, and there were places in Belgium, in, in one of the cities that he was in, where they could not, the, the police don't go there. It's lawlessness. I mean, they, they, they just don't even show up. Just whatever happens there stays there. You know, it's, it's, it's I suppose, like Vegas, whatever. But it's just, they, they, they just, there's no law there. It's lawlessness. And John says to the people who think you can live, the, the heretics were trivializing, they were minimizing, they were marginalizing, they were rationalizing sin. Folks, that happens today. In America, we trivialize it, we marginalize it, we minimize it, we, we excuse it. I've not seen any of these shows, but I've seen advertisements for these shows. Dirty Little Liars. Desperate Housewives. Animal Kingdom. Shows that, I would assume, based on the advertisements, are a promotion of perversion. Of Godlessness, of lawlessness. Folks, we euphemistically in this country refer to sin. Murder is a choice now. Perversion is a lifestyle now. Unethical business practices are shrewd business now. That's how it's all defined. That's how it's all recharacterized. John is forcefully clear the essence of sin is to intentionally disregard God's word and to disobey his will. And he says, that's not consistent with those who claim to have faith in Jesus Christ. And it's based on the reality of Jesus' first coming. That's the second point he makes, the purpose of Christ's coming in verse 5. And you know that he appeared. Now, we saw last time the appearance was his second coming. Now the appearance refers to his first coming, the incarnation. Jesus appeared in his incarnation for what purpose? Look at the text, verse 5, to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. He came to take away sin. John 1.29. John sees Jesus coming and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Take away the sins of the world. Through his substitutionary death on the cross, Jesus made a way for sins to be taken away. To accomplish forgiveness. To bear the penalty of our sin on his body. And that's what Isaiah says. Isaiah chapter 53, and beginning with verse 3. Surely our griefs he himself bore. And our sorrows he carried. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. That means every one of us. So there you go. Is John talking about all those who practice sin? Those are the people who are living in sin and they don't really care if they're living in sin. They're just living in sin. But they may say that they, they know Jesus, but they really don't because their, their, their sin belies their true character. But we all sin. And he caused all of us like sheep have gone astray. And he has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him, on Jesus. 
And so that's the shedding of his blood. And we had it in the first service in, first, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In him, is re, in him, in his blood, there is redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. In him. Redemption, forgiveness in Christ. You say, oh yeah, I know. I, I'm in church. I kind of expect to hear that. But that's what John's saying. You people, you say you can live in sin, you can sin, it doesn't really matter. No, that's not true. It matters if we sin. Shedding of blood for his forgiveness. In, John, or in Romans chapter 6, verse 6, he says, Knowing this, the old self has been crucified that the body of sin might be done away, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. That's the way Jesus took away sin. He didn't eliminate sin from the mix. He didn't eliminate sin from our lives, from the world, but he, he took it away in the sense that it no longer has power over us and it no longer results in the penalty for those who are trusting in Christ. That's what Jesus provided for at the cross of Calvary, his victory over sin, its power and its presence. And so I just ask this morning, do you know personally that victory over sin's power and sin's penalty, because you are trusting in Jesus' death, and that alone is the payment for your sin. It's the only way to be free from the penalty of sin, which is death, and the power of sin, which controls us and keeps us from living a victorious Christian life. And if you don't, then my challenge to you is to personally understand that you're one of these, all these sheep who've gone astray. You've turned away from God and that you deserve death. That's what the Bible says. The wage of sin is death. And that Christ died to pay the price for your sin and my sin so that all who trust in Christ would be forgiven and receive Him today. The possibility of right living stems from the purpose of His first coming. And we're going to celebrate it as we celebrate the communion in a little bit. His first coming reminds us that He died to pay our price. But it also... It also comes from his person. Notice the text says, in him there is no sin. So if we say that we follow him, we're one of his followers, but we live in sin, then that's incongruous because he came to take away sin, and he came as one who was sinless. And he had to be sinless. Because if Jesus wasn't sinless, then he wouldn't die for our sins. He'd die for his own sins. I don't know if you're familiar with Watergate. You can study this in history. Some of you young people, that's what you... I lived through it, but some of you are studying it in history, right? Watergate scandal, and there were files taken from one political party to the other political party, and people went to jail, and one of the people that went to jail was Chuck Colson. And Chuck Colson went to jail. He tells the story about being in jail, and there was a friend of his, and uh, Chuck Colson had become a believer after all of the scandal, and there was a friend of his who wanted to... who actually went to the law legal system to the judge and said, I want to serve his sentence. I, I want to go to jail for him so that he can get out and be with his family. The judge considered it and, and refused it, but the person who went and said, I want to serve his sentence, could not have served the sentence for Chuck Colson if he himself was guilty of crime. He would have had to serve his own sentence. When Jesus came to this earth, he came and lived as a sinless son of God, so that when he died on the cross, his the penalty that he bore was our penalty, not his own penalty. So that he was a sinless son of God. And then there's this, the conclusion comes in verse 6. He says, no one who abides in him sins. You can't be living in close communion with the one who is sinless and, and live in sin. Actually, literally, the text says everyone, that's that phrase again, everyone who abides in him does not sin. 
Jesus is without sin. He took away sin, so those who live in him can't sin. I've been to southern Hungary several times, and in southern Hungary they have many, many vineyards, grapevines. And on the grapevines, they don't grow oranges because it's a grapevine. And so the branches that are abiding in the vine produce fruit that's consistent with the plant. All John is saying is if you're abiding in Christ, then the fruit that's produced will be consistent with the plant, the person in which we're abiding, which is Jesus. It can't be one or the other. Everyone who practices sin, it says at the end of verse 6, has not seen him, nor does he know him. In 3 John 11, it's going to be on the screen, says, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Now, this means not that you never did anything evil. See, this is, I want to make this clear. John is not saying that if you ever messed up, you ever sinned, because we all do, that you are not of God. What he's saying is that if you are the one who practices this as part of your nature, and that's what you do, then you're not of God. He certainly is calling those who profess faith in Christ to examine themselves. Say, well, wait a second, I've got to take a look at my life. Am I one who's practicing sin? Then maybe I'm really not in. But those of us who are in, we do sin. So that's what we need to grapple with and understand. There's a story. I had a, I have a good friend. He was telling me this story because I was at a ball game recently where two people got ejected, for, two fans from the other team got ejected from this ball game because they were being obnoxious and unruly. And this friend of mine told me that there was a, an athlete whose father was banned from attending his athletic events in high school. And this, this student was a really, really good athlete, and so he went on to wrestle in college. And his, his father was banned from going to his college wrestling meets. That's how bad he was. He wasn't a good guy. I mean, no matter how you slice it, it's like you can't say, well, that guy was really a good guy. No, he wasn't a good guy. I mean, the, the evidence is, you know, as my grandma used to say, the proof is in the pudding. You know, it's, it's when, you, when you taste it and they're not a good cook, they're not a good cook. I don't care how you slice it. It's just it doesn't taste good, it's not a good cook. And so when, you know, you, you can, so it wasn't good. John isn't finished yet, though, with making his point that right living is the result of right standing. So then he goes to the positive in verses 7 through 10. We practice righteousness. If we practice righteousness, then we are children of God. There's the premise. You look at verse 7. Little children, his term of affection and connection. Let no one deceive you. That's key. Because John is arguing against a deception. And the deception that he was arguing against is this that belief trumped behavior. That it really didn't matter how they lived. It only mattered what they believed. No, folks, here's the deal. Belief determines behavior. Convictions determine conduct. Attitude determines action. We know that conduct reveals character. 
And that's what John is arguing. A sin in a person's life, they thought, didn't matter because they were enlightened. Oh, no, it matters a great deal, John says. He didn't want them to be deceived into thinking. He didn't want us to be deceived into thinking that we could live however we wanted to and say that we were a child of God. Maybe you've had this experience. Sadly, several years ago, I was at a funeral. And the person officiating the funeral told the congregation that was gathered that the, that the deceased was with God in heaven. No doubt that this person was with God in heaven. And then gave the same assurance to the congregation that they too would be with God in heaven. But gave no regard to the way the person had lived their life. Gave no deference or any acknowledgement that there was a a personal, real faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So that basically, we're all going to heaven. It doesn't really matter how you live. That's garbage. That's not the Bible. John says, the test of whether we possess True faith is how we live. How we live doesn't make us a Christian, but if we're a Christian, then we will live consistent with what it means to be a child of God. Now, that doesn't mean we'll be perfect. No, no, nobody's perfect. Not not perfection deal, but progress. See the difference between those who are practicing sin and those who are believers who do sin is that the believer who sins understands and realizes and comes to acknowledge and is sorrowful and repentant and broken and turns from the sin. He says, I, I know that's not what God wants. That's not what is pleasing to him, and I'm sorry, and I want to turn. I want to be transformed by that. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. That's what he says. Interesting passage in Matthew chapter 7. And I'm not going to turn there right now, but I, if you want to write it down, verses 15 through 18. Jesus says the tree is known by its fruit. The tree is known by its fruit. There are many be, say to me, he says at the end of that passage, and I think verse 20, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And he'll say, I never knew you. He says, it's even possible to do the right things, but not have the right heart. But he says the tree is known by its fruit. Don't be deceived. Conduct reveals our character. I think of Daniel. Remember Daniel in chapter 6? Daniel knew that there was this law that if you bowed or prayed to anyone but the king, you would be going into the lion's den. And with his doors and windows wide open three times a day, Daniel continued to pray towards the temple in Jerusalem where the presence of God was supposed to be. And he got caught. You know, if you're here this morning and you're trusting Jesus as Lord and Savior, don't you want to be a Daniel? I mean, I want to be a Daniel. Now, you know, people say, oh, well, I'll never deny Jesus. Well, try to take that up with Peter. You know, I mean, I, I mean one of the, you know, I, I don't, I'm not going there. I'm not saying I'll never deny Jesus. I want to be a Daniel. I'm not saying I am. I, I just say I want to be. Daniel lived it out. He says, interesting in verse 8, he says, for the one who practices sin is of the devil. The one who practices righteousness is of God. The one who practices sin is of the devil. 
well, what does it mean to be of the devil? And what does it mean to do the deeds of the devil? In John chapter 8, verse 44, we see the deeds of the devil. He says, you are of your father the devil, Jesus speaking to the, uh, the religious leaders, and you want to do the desires of your father. Well, what were the desires of his father? He was a murderer. And from the beginning, it does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. He's a liar and the father of lies. So how does Satan lie to you? How does he lie to you? How does he lie to me? He's a liar and he's a father of lies. So he lies. He says that, that he lies to us. The practitioners of righteousness are righteous, and, and Satan will be a liar, and he lies to us. He lies to us about relationships. Either we need a relationship we don't have, or he lies to us and causes relational conflict. Well, they, we assume that they are thinking this. We assume that they mean this. We assume this. And so there's, there's tension in relationships. He deceives us morally, blinds people to the truth. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The God of this world blinds the minds of the unbelieving. You know, I wonder, I watch the news and I go, how can people be so stupid? Of course, I know, that's an arrogant statement because I'm stupid too. But to spiritual truth, people are blinded because the enemy blinds their eyes. I shouldn't be mad at the people. I should, they're not the enemy. They're victims of the enemy. The enemy blinds our eyes relationally. He blinds our eyes morally. He deceives us. Mental seduction. We are selfish people, and Satan believe, uh, teaches us that. You go to James chapter 4. Why do you have quarrels and bickering among you? Because you, you want to consume these things upon your own lust. You're selfish people. We need to understand that the purpose of Christ's coming was to destroy to destroy sin. That's verse 8, end of it. And you say, well, how did sin... I, I, there's still sin, so Jesus did wasn't successful in destroying sin. That's the end of verse 8. Oh, yes, he was. He was there to, in, the, in the sense of this, that he, to, to destroy it means to remove its power, to render it powerless. In the life of every child of God, sin no longer has power. This is Romans chapter 6. If you look at Romans chapter 6, we're going to put it up on the screen. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 6. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death, it says, through him into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too, what? Might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. We'll have resurrection life. Knowing this, that the old self was crucified, that the body of sin, that controlling power of sin in our life, might be destroyed, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Before we come to Christ, we are slaves of sin. After we come to faith in Christ, we still sin, but we're no longer a slave. There's a choice. Because of the Spirit of God living within us. That's how we destroy the power of the devil. So immediately, the penalty of sin and the power of sin is destroyed. And ultimately, the presence of sin will be destroyed. That's what Jesus did for us on the cross. And then that leads to this conclusion in verses 9 and 10. No one, he says, or everyone, literally, again, it's everyone who is born of God does not practice sin. So everyone, everyone, everyone. Everyone who does not practice sin is... is, is Everyone who is born of God does not practice sin. I like what John Stott says in his commentary. He says, Christians do not practice sin. 
Christians cannot practice sin. Practice sin. That's the key word. Practice sin. I sin. Every day I sin. I have a selfish thought. I say a selfish word. I say an arrogant statement. I do something proud or indifferent or insensitive to people. I, make, I sin. But I'm not condemned to hell because of my sin. My sins have been paid for and washed in the blood of the Lamb, and I've been forgiven because then I'm remorseful and sorrowful and repent and turn and trust what Christ's blood did for my, my sins. But those who practice sin, continue in sin, are not Christians. Why do we not practice sin? Because his seed abides in us. If anyone is in Christ, he's what? A new creation. If you're this morning and you're trusting in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are a new creature in Christ. The Spirit of God has come to dwell within you. You have a divine nature. We are children. We have a spiritual heritage, folks, every one of us. It's either divine or diabolical. Okay? A spiritual heritage. It's either divine or diabolical. I have this uh, friend of ours, and uh, both the husband and wife have red hair and freckles. They have four kids. What do you think is true of each of those four kids? Red hair and freckles. There's absolutely no trouble distinguishing whose kids they are. In the same way that human offspring reflect their parents' physical characteristics, the spiritual offspring of our Heavenly Father reflect His moral character. It's just the way it's supposed to be. And so John summarizes this whole thing in verse 10 and yet and launches or introduces the next section in, in verse 10. Here's what he says. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. He doesn't even say, well, you know, you kinda, there's a little bit of a kind of a gray area here. It's obvious. I want to show you a picture of my, my siblings. Uh, this is not the best picture. But when I look at that picture, it does not seem to me to be apparent or obvious that we are related. There is not a lot of resemblance there. Okay, you can get off that picture. It's not very endearing to any of us. But, uh, uh, but if I'm a child of God, and this is what's, what's, as I've been preparing this message and going through this week, I'm, I'm constantly coming back to this. Is it obvious that I'm a child of God? Is my conduct so consistent with the character of God that it's just like when people see me, they see Jesus? And honestly, I'm, I'm saying, no, I don't think so. Now, does that mean that I think I'm not a child of God? No, but it means I sure want to do business with God and say, Lord, am I really wanting to live for you each day? Is that really my honor? Am I going to spend time with you and allow you to shape and mold and guide my character? Because I don't think that's the nature of my essence of my character. I'm not a practicing sin person. That, well, I'm gonna, I don't care what I, you know, people walk around and say, yeah, I just gave a few choice words on that one. Yeah, I don't give a rip about that. Yeah, this is the way it's going to be and I don't care who cares about it. The world is full your neighbors, your family, your friends, your co-workers. People are practicing sin. They're children of the devil. It's obvious. He says, don't be deceived. 
Only those who practice righteousness, illustrated by the fact that we love each other, are born of God. Only as we practice righteousness. That's it, the test. Conduct reveals character. So I ask myself, I ask you, what does my conduct reveal about my character? Your character. Does conduct reveal corruption? Does it reveal that I'm a practicing sin person? If that's true, guess what? There's hope through the person and the work of Jesus that you can be freed and liberated from the power and the penalty of sin and from the persistent control of sin in your life by trusting in Christ's death as the payment for your sins. You can be forgiven. That doesn't mean you'll be perfect. And for every one of us who is forgiven, there's conviction here. So I look and I say, whoa, is my conduct, it's obvious that you're a child of God or you're not a child? Whoa, some days I'm going, it's not real obvious. And some people, you know, it's like, don't put ick through things and, you know, I love Jesus on your bumper sticker and then drive like knucklehead. I mean, just save it, Okay. I get, you know, I, I get, you know, wearing, the, wearing their crosses, uh, you know, cussing up a storm. And, you know, what would Jesus do? Bracelets while they're flipping people off and, you know, doing things that are just, you know, it's just like that's, no. We all need grace. The grace of God for those who practice unrighteousness is in the cross of Calvary where our sins were paid for and where we turn from our sin and trust in a gracious and loving Savior we can be forgiven and have the grace and the courage and the boldness to keep living this life imperfectly if we're trusting in Him and if you've never done that I invite you as we celebrate the the, the Lord's table to see this as an invitation to turn and trust and be forgiven And if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, as we celebrate these elements, as I break the bread that symbolizes his body broken, as we drink the cup which symbolizes his his blood that was shed, I I just challenge you to to reflect on what's the conduct of my life? What what character does it reveal? And, And do I need God's grace at the cross to live each day to more fully reflect my spiritual heritage? As a child of God, yes, I do. And so come and make us a recommitment to live for Jesus by his grace and to ask him for help and courage and boldness to expose the sin in my life that may be obvious to everybody else that is standing in the way of the world seeing Jesus through me. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to break the bread, and the praise team's going to come. And you come, if you're here and you know Jesus or you want to trust Jesus and, and, and get to know him, then I invite you to come and take these elements as an invitation to receive it, as a commemoration to call and commit and trust and live for Christ. Father, if we're unrighteous, we're not children of God. If we practice unrighteousness, and if we practice righteousness, we are children of God. And so I pray that you would help us who don't know Jesus, who are practicing righteousness, and we know we're indifferent or we're rebellious deliberately, I pray that those hearts would be touched and they would turn and trust in you and find the forgiveness that comes alone through personal faith in Christ.
And those of us who know you, Lord, I pray that we would be convicted of our sin, of the times in which we have trivialized, minimized, marginalized the sin in our life, and that we would call upon you and thank you for the forgiveness that's ours in Christ, and that we would draw upon your grace to live more consistently the reality of our relationship with you so that our right living would truly reflect our right standing with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Thank you.